Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the public affairs show where we try to explain Vermont and the nation and understand our politics, culture, and democracy in ways we are still figuring out. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair and at the mic, and welcome to everyone listening on the radio and online at wdevradio.com and on the free WDEV radio app. Today is Friday, July 7th, and boy, do we have a lot to get to. First, we'll talk to the founder of of something called the Greenway Institute, which has just announced this week that it will buy much of the campus at the Vermont College of Fine Arts in Montpelier. This is a breaking story that just happened, and we will uh, we will have the founder of the Greenway Institute uh, and that educational uh, organization on the show. Her name is Rebecca Holcomb. She is the former education secretary for the state of Vermont. She lives in Norwich, and she'll be with us in the first segment. Then we head to Washington to talk, uh, have our weekly conversation with our correspondent, Bob Nay. We'll talk about the affirmative action decision. I guess we'll ask him about cocaine in the White House. Uh, this is, beware, this is the kind of story that, uh, that uh, we should not pay any attention to, but sometimes we do in the media. Um, much ado about nothing, but we'll get to it. Uh, we will also talk to Allison Novak at Seven Days about her story this week about the closing of the uh, Drug Rehab and Mental Health uh, Center in Burlington. Uh, that, that we'll be talking about that at, at 10.15. At 10.30, we're going to talk with... East Montpelier's Larry Gilbert, the brains behind the effort to close uh, County Road in East Montpelier for four upcoming Sundays to allow humans to walk, bike, and others, and do other things, rollerblade, uh, and all around enjoy that public road without the threat of traffic. Uh, Larry got the select board to agree with that. He's been on this show before because he's gotten that road closed once in the past, but I understand he's getting it done four times this summer. Um, and all, so all that is coming up. We'll take your calls, 244-1777. Um, but first, the state of Vermont has settled at long last the biggest scandal in its history, the EB-5 scandal, which ensnared governors, other public officials, uh, and destroyed the reputation and career of one of Vermont's best-known and respected business executives, Bill Stenger. This was, as most of you know, the giant scandal in which under under the EB-5 program, which was uh, championed by former now-retired Senator Patrick Leahy, Governor Jim Douglas, Governor Peter Shumlin, and others, uh, this was a deal, a, a federal legislation that allowed wealthy people around the world to plop down $500,000 uh, that would go into job creation in major developments around the country. Uh, Vermont was one of them. 
and in exchange for that $500, those wealthy people would, would get a green card so they could come to this country. Uh, it was a pay-to-play deal from start to finish. There were lots of people who got queasy about it. But the upside was that, uh, that the money would go into development projects that created jobs. For example, the promise was to uh, build a beautiful new hotel at the Jay Peak Ski Area and build a uh, major, major uh, new business in downtown Newport. That never happened, and there is a giant hole in the center of Newport, which that community is still struggling with today. Uh, the state has now settled and is going to pay 29 million well i have that confused with the uh with the broadband money uh, the state is making a major major uh the the attorney general settled the case for 16.5 million dollars with defrauded jp investors so the state of vermont is going to pay $16.5 million to settle claims by dozens of investors who were swindled by the JPEG EB-5 fraud. Okay, that announcement was made by the Attorney General Charity Clark on Wednesday afternoon. There, That settles more than three dozen lawsuits. 150 investors have been seeking money uh, because they got bilked out of their money, never got their green cards, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there were about 850 foreign investors who participated in the federal EB-5 program. So this is what's called a global settlement. If approved by a federal judge, it would resolve all investor litigation. It also means there'll be no trial. And that means that, you know, if, if you wanted to see former Governor Jim Douglas or Peter Shumlin take the stand as a witness in a trial about what they knew and what they didn't know about the EB-5 scandal, well, uh, forget it. You're not going to get your wish. Uh, there'll be no trial and no testimony from state officials. Uh, Attorney General Charity Clark says, My team and I did not come to this decision lightly. Many years of extensive legal work overseen by multiple attorneys general have carried us to this point. The funds will be paid over three years to the JPEG receivership uh, and I heard, uh, we'll have Charity Clark on the show to, to explain this, but, um, that's a, you know, that the EB-5, uh, program and scandal is basically over. Um, so, okay. That's our first break. We're going to come back and talk about the big news, uh, at the Vermont College of Fine Arts and the organization that is coming in to, uh, buy much of that campus. And as I said earlier, our guest is the founder of the Greenway Institute, which is doing the buying. And it's a name that uh, most of you know. Her name is Rebecca Holcomb. She's the former uh, education secretary for the state of Vermont, member of the legislature, sits on the House Appropriations Committee. She's going to be here with all the details right after this. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. I'm taking your calls 2441777 but buckle up we've got uh we've got some uh real serious education news coming out of Montpelier. So a new undergraduate engineering program 
has signed a purchase and sale agreement to buy five buildings at the Vermont College of Fine Arts in Montpelier. Uh, as most of you know, VCFA has moved most of its residencies and students to schools in Colorado and Pennsylvania. Uh, and so in its place, the big news, the nonprofit uh, Greenway Center for Equity and S- Sustainability is going to buy five of the major buildings on the campus. And we have the founder of the Greenway Institute uh, with us, Rebecca Holcomb. Uh, you know her as the former education secretary for the state of Vermont. She's a member of the House of Representatives, sits on the House Appropriations Committee. I know her as the member from Norwich. Welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. It's great to be here and talk to you. Though I have to say, I'm not just from Norwich. I'm from other towns, too. <laughs> I know. I know. But I just enjoy calling you Madam Secretary and the member from Norwich. But I'll, I'll get it right. How have, how have you been? I've been great, thank you. And actually, um, this this project is such an exciting project. I am so lucky to work with actually a couple of co-founders, Troy McBride, of, um, who's long been an entrepreneur in the in the Vermont area, working in the variety of green energy and green technology businesses. And we've hired some of our first founding faculty, including someone from Smith College, to come up and help develop and. I love this exciting new opportunity. So what is it exactly uh, that, that what I'm reading is that you are going to buy five of the major buildings on the campus and you're going to mm-hmm. bring undergraduate students uh, in concert with Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania to study okay. engineering in as it applies to equity and sustainability. But give us the details. The, the goal is, and you know yourself, that you can't walk out your door in Vermont without finding just some incredible young people who are very mission-driven, very focused on, you know, solving problems, making things work, building a better world for their community, who love to build things but are not so excited about the prospect of sitting down in a lecture hall and listening to someone talk about calculus and physics. We partner with Elizabeth College, and <clears throat> Elizabeth College is a fantastic small college with an increasingly well-known engineering program that uh, has worked, you know, for years to develop um, robust, engaging opportunities that help students learn the skills they need to go out and design and build a better future. And the program will be accredited under Elizabethtown College, and we propose to open programs in the context of Vermont, starting with a semester away that will bring students to Vermont, and hopefully opening the following year a one-year engineering immersive program that will bring young people who think they're interested in designing and building sustainable solutions and being part of that green energy and green technology transition we're in, but, but maybe want to make sure they have the skills and the, and, the, and the preparation to do so, so that they too can be part of this, this great future. So we'll be offering these courses and hopefully scaling over time in, into the campus um, and just really look forward to connecting Vermonters to those opportunities we know are out there in this sector. I noticed that um, the Gary Library, the Crowley Center, mm-hmm. and the Martin House uh, among others, are part of this deal. That's a that's a lot of real estate and a lot of buildings. What do you plan to do with them? Well, those 
buildings are actually the three buildings that are not part the, of our They're deal. not so, part of it. Okay. Yeah. There is a separate contract that, that um, is currently not in place um, where, where people backed out that involved those three buildings. We're mostly looking at classroom space um, and, and housing that will support our our, uh, our engineering education opportunities will also, you know, there will be some continuing revenue from existing tenants that help support the maintenance of the campus. We're looking to transition the campus to, to become a sort of zero energy model for what it looks like to affordably transition to some of the technologies that we're working with. Oh, I apologize. I had that wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, yeah, the yeah, three yeah. buildings That's that are part of the sale are Schulmeyer Hall, the Stone Science Building, and Dewey Hall, right? And Noble and, and on the other side of campus as well, yes. Okay. Uh, we'll be starting most of our operations in, in the Noble Hall, which is right on the green, facing across to the uh, VCFA administrative building. Yes, my wife slept there when she got a master's degree years ago. Um <laughs> Well, if she wants to come back and get a master's in engineering, we hope we can get there, too. Uh, oh, fantastic. So <laughs> so let's ask the, the question that is on everybody's mind. Are you going to change the way the green is used? Can we still walk our dogs on the green? <laughs> well, you're going to have to talk to the Vermont College of Fine Arts about that. And uh, I think our, they're, they're still going to be you know managing the green. We are incredibly thrilled to be able to partner with them. They've been beyond generous. And uh, we're working tightly to make sure that we can uh, share services where it makes sense and maintain the current feel of a higher education campus at the heart of Montpelier. Um, but my, you know, you'll have to direct that question to them. Uh, tell us how you're, you're not exactly uh, sitting around eating candy bars and watching TV. You're an incredibly busy, busy person. What got you involved in this and how are you going to make the time to, to – to work on it? Well, this project brings together three of the things I care about the most. I love my state and I'm highly invested in making sure that we have a really bright future here in Vermont. I know that our green energy and green technology sector is one of our fastest growing, highest wage, high demand sectors that really offers a lot of promise to a lot of Vermonters. And I also have been spending my entire life, as you know, invested in creating capability, making sure people have the skills they, they need and want to be able to live the lives they want to live in our Vermont communities. So it was a perfect opportunity to bring those three things together to work on these two priorities of sustainability and giving everybody a fair chance. Um, in terms of making time, the beauty of being part of the team is we all lean on each other, and I'm not alone. I have a co-founder who's been with me from the beginning, and we are building a fantastic team uh, of people who are interested in working to help co-design this program, launch it, and get us off the off the ground with the support of the National Science Foundation. And, and that national on college, frankly, I mean they have been beyond wonderful. We we spent time with them, you know, working on the program development, and look forward to their continued support as well. And there's a lot of solar energy development in your DNA. Uh, the, the One of your co-founders is the founder of uh, Norwich uh, Solar. Mm-hmm. Is that right? It's that and also an energy storage company. And I think, you know, certainly generation and storage are two components of environmental sustainability and energy, green energy, this green energy transition. So certainly, yes, uh, he comes with strong uh, depth of knowledge and experience in the, the development and storage of green energy. He also was tenured faculty at Elizabethtown College years ago and has worked at higher ed and other places and so has strong 
academic credentials as well. Uh, so when, well, first of all, let's get to some more detail. Do you, can you give us a date when the purchase and sale agreement, uh, when, when the deal will close? Do you know that yet? We're still working on that. Okay. Um, but you know, we're very optimistic and you know, all these things, there's just little logistics at the last minute you got to work through, but we're very confident and we're looking forward to, uh, wel- welcoming a, a, a pilot group of students to help us develop the program and full launch hopefully in the in the fall next year so a year from now and i assume you can't share more details of the financial arrangements yet i think that's really up to vcfa okay again i I would defer to them okay um you're, you're, what's interesting news-wise to the residents of Montpelier, uh, well, at a lot of levels, but one thing you're doing is you're bringing students back to that campus in a residential way. There's going to be a lot of young people walking around town. We like that. That's the goal. And, you know, I, I think, you know, we, you know, just like you wouldn't be excited about buying a restaurant if it was the only one at the intersection, there's, there's real power and concentration of talent and energy. And so we look forward to bringing young people back to the heart of Montpelier. We also work, look forward to bringing that concentration of people who are interested in technology, interested in innovation and entrepreneurship, interested in figuring out solutions to some of the hard problems Vermont has. We feel like this is going to put us on the map and help support efforts by others across the state to, to build that better and brighter future we know Vermonters deserve. You have a $1.2 million grant from the National Science Foundation. Uh, how else will you fund this program? Tuition? Uh, fundraising? How, what's your business model look like? A, a bit of both. I mean, obviously, students who are our first students will likely be from Elizabethtown College, the majority of them, so they're already enrolled, already receiving federal financial aid and um, paying tuition. Uh, we also have some additional funding beyond that to help support the launch. A lot of the NSF money is going to program design and support in the initial years. It will also qualify us to continue to apply for additional funding sources. So, you know, I think we'll do all of the above, but we're being very strategic about growing as we go. Our priorities are sustainability and business operations, making sure we don't grow beyond what we can do as well as we feel is important, and uh, we'll, we'll take it as we go. This is called the Greenway Center of, for equity and sustainability. Why are those two words uh, important to you? Um, the I think because you can't have one without the other. You know, when you think about tackling some of the, the challenges we have, many of them were created by engineering solutions that maybe didn't consider all the potential implications or didn't evaluate the long-term consequences of some of the, the choices that were made. If we are going to bring the benefits of our green energy transition and do this in a way that benefits everyone, including rural areas, I mean, rural areas are some of the most adversely affected by our lack of climate solutions, but also some of the ones that stand to benefit the most. Rural communities are also some of the most underrepresented in engineering. We need to have equitable access to the table so those diverse voices can help shape the solutions so they can actually provide solutions for all of the people in all of the communities who need them. So we really see the two going hand in hand. Um, you know, sustainability is about more than technology. It's about taking care of the environment. It's about long-term shared economic prosperity, and it's about making sure everyone has a fair chance. So they go hand in hand, can't have one without the other. And you are holding... I guess in concert with the college, uh, 
a kind of a community meeting on July 13th uh, at College Hall to introduce mm-hmm. the community to this. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, our hope is to, to make sure that people know who we are. They have a chance to ask questions. We're, again, super excited and grateful to the Vermont College of Fine Arts for co-hosting this with us. We're looking forward to making sure that this this transition is smooth for the community and respects the longstanding higher education purpose of those facilities and has done so in a way that, that embraces the community and helps the community feel that we're helping them become better as well. And uh, you can't do that if you're not talking face-to-face, and we look forward to hearing from people what they have to say. And uh, you're already driving up the interstate every day. You've been doing this for a lot of years now. This just adds another brick to your load uh, and another job to do when you're when you're on the phone between Norwich and uh, Montpelier. <laughs> um, will you have an office at, on the campus? Well, we will have more room than we know what to do with it. Start, so I suspect I will have an office up there. Yes, of course I will, Kevin. And it's um, we're actually really looking forward to it. One of the advantages of buying the VCFA is that it's turnkey ready. It's been used as recently as this year um, for the same purpose. And we'll have to make some minor modifications internally to refit some of the spaces for use as fabrication labs, things like that, or machine shops. But fundamentally, it's it's good to go as is. And there are rooms that we can move into and do our business right there in Montpelier. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great opportunity. It's a great continued use. People shouldn't see much except perhaps a couple more, more young faces on campus. And, and when will we start seeing those faces? Oh, we're hoping to have a, a pilot a cohort that's going to come in and help us design the program as soon as this, uh, this fall. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. Uh, the Greenway Institute, uh, Rebecca Holcomb, the found, one of the founders, uh, we're, we're excited to see new faces at the, on that college campus and downtown. And, uh, so look for Rebecca Holcomb. She is the former education secretary for the state of Vermont. Uh, she is a member of the house and she is one of the founders of the Greenway Institute. You'll be seeing more of her and young students and others in downtown Montpelier and on that campus. Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kevin, and thank you for keeping engaged in all of these issues. I appreciate the opportunity to share. Okay. That's Rebecca Holcomb. Um, That's going to be interesting. We're going to be talking a lot more about that because uh, seeing human beings on that campus, up on that hill, on the green, throwing the Frisbee, uh, doing all manner of things, and that is a serious project they're bringing. $1.2 million from the National Science Foundation. They're bringing engineering uh, students, first from Pennsylvania, Elizabethtown College, but then they'll be bringing them from other places. That's going to be exciting, and we'll be talking a lot more about it. Uh, We're going to take a break. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll open the phones after we get back. Uh, You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Okay, we're back. Um, it's uh, we're going to open the phones. By the way, two four four one seven seven seven. For the next half hour, we'll be uh, taking your calls. You can email me at uh, vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com or call me at two four four one seven seven seven. Danny is at the board. He'll be taking your call and connecting us. So that new undergraduate undergraduate engineering program at the Vermont College of Fine Arts, that's a big announcement. 
I don't suspect you're going to see hundreds and hundreds of students uh, from the get-go, but what you are going to see is uh, action. She mentioned uh, fabrication labs. Uh, I mean, they, they've bought dorms and other buildings up there on the hill. Uh, that, that's what we're talking about here is a green energy and green tech uh, incubation space for engineers uh, who are undergraduate college students. And uh, Holcomb said she expects uh, 20 Elizabethtown uh, college students to enroll this fall, and she hopes it'll grow from there. Um, now, what, her partner, this fellow McBride, uh, started Norwich Solar and uh, a batter, an energy storage company. Uh, there's a lot of sort of solar energy in their DNA. Uh, so we're combining engineering and job creation, and uh, this is this is going to be a huge impact on this campus, and it's going to have an impact on Montpelier, in a, in my view, in a good way. I mean, uh, you know, I don't think there's parking issues. I, I don't think there's – I just think they're going to be filling up what are now empty buildings uh, with students and faculty and administrators. And they're all going to need to uh, walk in Hubbard Park and get a meal, get lunch, um, maybe we need an electro, electric trolley that goes up and down East State Street, but, um, that's, that's a, that's a big development. Okay. Uh, issue number two, the Bashara family is selling their hotel. Okay. Let's get into it. So Fred Bashara, I call him the old man to his face when I see him on the street. Uh, they own the laundromats, the car washes, the uh the uh, movie theater the movie theaters in Barry and and Montpelier and then the crown jewel is the Capitol Plaza hotel with its restaurant where you get the biggest portions in the entire eastern united states i've never seen anything like it you go in there and order a cob salad and you can barely eat half of it the, the portions are are just enormous um it's the go to uh hotel for travelers um, affordable, um, and the Bashara family's owned it since 1993 when the place went bankrupt and, uh, and Fred Bashara stepped in and raised the money, did the financing, uh, and revamped the hotel. And boy, if there was ever a hands-on family owner of an institution, that's it. Uh, you can see Fred crossing the street all the time. He takes tickets at the movie theater. His children are fixing the laundry machines on Barry Street. Um, and, uh, they're a, they're a good source of, uh, youth employment in their restaurants and in the movie theaters. Um, and many of you will remember that his big, uh, his big project was to build a, uh, have a second hotel uh, along the river behind the Capitol Plaza. It was going to be a Hampton Inn, as I recall. Uh, the goal there uh, was to, he once stopped me in the movie theater and said, oh, Kevin, you're going to love it. It's going to be white, clean, really nice. Because I was always skeptical and expressed my doubts about the need for a second 
hotel. What I was really expressing my doubts about was the need for a parking garage, which the city uh, uh, proposed in order to accommodate the cars that would stay in that hotel and to ease parking congestion downtown. I was a vocal uh, opponent of the parking garage and then uh, putting my finger in the air and recognizing the politics, I immediately after after the city of Montpelier voted overwhelmingly in favor of a parking garage, I then tempered my criticism and said that I would be uh, in favor of the parking garage. But uh, so hypocrisy was all over uh, my face on that one. Um, that was a very difficult issue. And a, and a, a small group of citizens uh, sued to sue the city to stop the construction of the parking garage. And that held it up uh, for months and months and months and months and was starting to cost the city uh, lots and lots of money. So eventually the parking garage uh, project was was dropped. I promise to call up Fred Beshera and try to get him to come on the show uh, because uh, he's always a great fun to talk to. Uh, that The parking garage project going down meant the death of his uh, proposed Hampton Inn behind the Capitol Plaza. I did notice that he, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, achieved a, a designation by, I think it's Hilton Hotels, which which changed a lot for the hotel because it allowed uh, travel, business travelers to get their points. You know, for so many years, business travelers coming to uh, Montpelier for a meeting with someone in government, uh, you know, state agencies, the governor's office, they'd drive all the way back to uh, Burlington that night to get their points instead of enjoying Montpelier. And now they can stay at the Capitol Plaza, get their points, eat dinner, walk around, uh, and that's a boon to the city. But uh, that's all going to go away now. That's, that's, that's too bad. The Becheras are selling the, uh, the Capitol Plaza Hotel, and uh, we'll see what comes of it. I don't have any uh, confidence that it'll be run as well as they run it. You know, it's there's nothing like walking into any establishment and knowing the people who live there uh, and who work there every day. And um, that's been fun. But I somehow I doubt that the Basharas are going anywhere. Uh, they, as I said, they own the car washes, the movie theaters and the laundromats. Uh, they're going to be around and it'll be fun to see what they do with uh, see what they do with the dough that they're going to get out of this deal. We'll see if Fred will tell us the details. Um, Issue number three. Last week, the Vermont Community Broadband Board announced that the state is receiving $229 million in federal funding uh, to expand high-speed broadband access. That figure is 50 million more than state officials had anticipated. Good news to wire up rural Vermont. Now, this is, uh, this hits close to home for me. I live in East Montpelier, five miles from downtown Montpelier, and I live in a tiny little pocket where we don't get, we get very slow internet. And it is a source of, as a guy who has a consulting business and writes radio scripts and 
does the show and has a podcast, etc. I need fast internet and I can't get it at home. So, uh, when a couple of weeks ago, when, uh, a, a, a truck with a big crane on it showed up to start working on the pole right next to my house and then five guys, uh, it was, it was a great scene. Five guys, no English. Uh, I, 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 uh, they, they're, they're hauling big cable fiber off a wheel, uh, through my backyard. And I, of course, being me, stopped them and said, Hey guys, this is great. Is this fiber? No English, but I squeezed out of them that they're from the country of Georgia. Uh, and then after a few phone calls, I squeezed out that they were working for CV fiber, which is the local municipal fiber project that is uh, stringing fiber from everywhere from, well, throughout central Vermont. And it's going to bring us really fast speeds. I'm going to be able to do everything from my home office, which is really exciting. Anyway, uh, good guys, but it was, it was, they are working really, really hard and really fast to string this fiber. And it's going to close this little pocket from sort of from me where I live, uh, off county road to, to kind of adamant where, where, where it's, it's a tough, you know, uh, our internet is, is kind of spotty. So, uh, 100 megabits per second, uh, and faster, that's going to change a lot of things, at least in my life, but, um, it'll, it'll speed things up. I do have a friend, contractor, who once said to me, uh, I hate all, he says, I hate all this. I, I don't want faster internet. I don't want, you know, uh, I don't want more people to come here. If we could take it all back to dirt roads and, uh, you know, no cell phones, he'd be for that. But this is the way of the world at the moment. $229 million in new federal funds to pay for the stringing of this high-speed uh, fiber to all Vermont households. Um, so that's – this is – the Vermont Community Broadband Board is the sort of state board that oversees all of this uh, stringing of fiber. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, you all know the scene of, you know, during COVID for sure, but, but, uh, people going to the, sitting outside the local library, I've been there myself, um, or, you know, going into the library to get internet because you can't get it at home. And, you know, we have a lot of hills and valleys here. Um, now the $229 million from the feds is on top of $245 million that came from the Biden administration under the American Rescue Act. Uh, that is, that's a lot of money. And, uh, Remember that state auditor Doug Hoffer, uh, issued a report about, you know, relying on these communications districts like CV Fiber, uh, which has no experience handling these large expenses. There's a real possibility of, um, you know, of, of how that money is going to be used. Is that money going to be used, uh, well and responsibly? Um, 
but we're we're getting close to a point where we don't have to be sitting outside the our country store or our uh, library or hospital or restaurant to get high speed internet. We're back, and we're going to go to the phones. Jim and Barry, you're on the line. You're on Vermont Viewpoint with Kevin Ellis. Welcome. Yeah, good morning, Kevin. <clears throat> I got a small, I don't know what the subject is. I just turned it on, but it sounded like you were taking open calls. But um, I have a small bone to pick with you from last week of something that you said. Um, you had characterized the uh, hotel pro- the motel program ending as evicting uh, the, the occupants of tenants uh you know, at various dates. I think characterizing it as evicted is, is unfair and, and overly harsh and very pejorative to the to the governor. Uh, he's probably one of the most compassionate governors we've ever had. Now, you, you may see this as a um, distinction without a difference, but um, they're not being evicted as such. They're free to stay there, I'm sure, if they continue to pay, which obviously is a practical matter, and that's not an option. But to say they're being evicted, like somehow someone's pulling the rug off from underneath them, uh, you know, that, I just don't think that's fair. It was, a, it was an extremely compassionate program, and, and it's coming to an end. But um, they're not being evicted. It's just the money is run up. That's all. So anyway, that's all I wanted to say. Jim, thank you for the call. Always love it when callers come to the show to pick a bone. Uh, yeah, you make a good point. I mean, I, you know, responsibility for the closing of the program is shared between the governor and the, and the legislature. And, you know, I watched it up close in the legislature. These are hard decisions. And I'm the last guy in the world to call the governor heartless. I mean, uh, you know, he's got the toughest job in state government. He's, uh, he made a decision. He said it was time for the program to come to an end. Uh, there's a lot of people on the other side. I can see it from his point of view. He's saying, look, the federal money's has ended and we have to find other ways. And frankly, if I was the governor, I might have made a similar decision, uh, because I don't think this is something he says publicly, but I bet privately he's saying we've got to find other ways to care for these people in their communities and not uh, having them sleep in these motels. Um, and we've got to get cities in the cities like Montpelier, for example, where I live. Uh, we got to push this 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 effort down to the city level and, you know, we'll help them pay for it. But the city's got to identify structures in the community and build housing for these people that where they can live in dignity. So, Jim, I take your point, and I really appreciate your call. Uh, Stephen from Montpelier, you are on the line with Kevin Ellis. Good morning, Kevin. Morning. I have this thought. I've always had this thought, which is rather strange. But I've always envisioned a gondola from the transit center up to national life. And with gondolas, with all the ski areas, and every major Vermont business that would like to sponsor a gondola. Yeah, keep going. That's it. Okay. Boy, you're going to set me off here. Uh, 
my friend Dan Jones, it's funny you should mention that because my friend and neighbor Dan Jones uh, raised some money and uh, when he was running something called, I think it was called the Sustainable Montpelier uh, Coalition. Um, he sponsored a design contest in which uh, he invited uh, designs for the future of Montpelier. And one of the, I believe it was the winning entry, uh, and, you know, architects and all sorts of creative people uh, submitted highly detailed designs. And I believe it was the winning entry. And, you know, if Dan Jones is out there, feel free to call in 244-1777 because Stephen's raising a great point. I think the winning entry had a gondola going from downtown Montpelier up to National Life. I mean, wouldn't that be great to uh, – and, you know, I expected, Stephen, I expected a lot of – oh, I don't know whether it was would be pushback from the left of the political center or the right of the political center or just people saying it's too expensive or, you know, sometimes in Montpelier we get a little – you know, we don't like our change very much. But uh, that would be – that would be a, a heck of a new sort of, uh, you know – you know, Act 250 might have a, a problem with the view shed, but I think it would be great fun. And for all those national life people to be able to take the gondola down and have lunch or come down after work, uh, it does pose some issues. Um, you know, a lot of those national life people eat lunch up there in their cafeteria. So suddenly they are they going to get on the gondola and come downtown? Uh, I would hope so. Um, and. But uh, it was – that gondola idea was uh, – it, it's not the first time it's been talked about. Uh, a lot of people have talked about it. You know, it's it just seems a little pie in the sky for some reason. But but I think it's a heck of an idea. And I bet there's old gondolas uh, sitting around ski areas, as Stephen says. I think it, it, it would be – it would be fun. It'd really be fun to investigate, be fun to figure out how much it would cost. But as I said, when Dan Jones uh, did that design competition in downtown Montpelier, uh, I believe uh, that uh, the winning entry had a gondola going from downtown Montpelier to uh, to uh, National Life. Okay, uh, let's do one more call before we have to take a break. Brian? In Brookfield, you're yep. on the line. Good morning. Morning. I just wanted to say, in my opinion, Governor Scott is a really good governor. Yeah, there's been others, but, you know, he's run businesses of his own, and he knows what's going on. And, and, and I fully agree that we shouldn't be paying foreign investors off as taxpayers. Um, it, it's just not right. Shumlin is the one that should come to toll for it. He should be charged as well as the other ones were. He was in it knee-deep. He knew what he was doing. And, uh, you know, Charity Clark, no pun intended. Good lady. Met her. Talked to her. Believe in what she does. That's my opinion. Thank you for sharing it. we got to go. Brian, you raised a really good point. Uh, that's, that's 16 million that the attorney general has agreed to pay to settle all of this. That's taxpayer dollars. Um, and the, the, 
you know, her view, I think, is that uh, 16 million is uh, makes all of this go away, makes all the law- investor lawsuits go away, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah, you're expressing frustration that Governor Shumlin and others uh, don't get put on the stand and, and, and uh, question about this. So thanks for calling. Uh, we're going to come back after the break and we're going to go to Washington and we're going to talk to Bob Nay about all things D.C., You're listening to Kevin Ellis on Vermont Viewpoint at the Friendly Pioneer WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thank you for calling in. Uh, that was a good open phones half hour. We'll do a little bit more of it later in the hour. Uh, but we're, first we're going to go to Washington, D.C., where we're joined by our correspondent, Bob Nay. As usual, welcome, Bob Nay, to the show. Well, thank you, Kevin. Okay. Uh, Ukraine, the Biden administration has announced uh, a, a, a new $800 million aid package, mm-hmm. including uh, the shipping of cluster bombs to Ukraine for use in that war. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, and, and uh, Kevin, there's a little bit of side story to this that's kind of important. First, the cluster, uh, if people haven't heard about the cluster munition, cluster bombs as they're called, they're uh, sort of like best way to describe them is packages and round tubes and they're bombs. And when they explode, they throw bits and pieces like shrapnel. And um, the, the problem with them in the past, especially because uh, they've been banned by 100 con- countries, is the fact that a lot of them don't explode later on. Years later, they could explode. And, of course, you know what happens with civilians. Now, the last time we used cluster bombs was in 2003 to 2006, in Iraq. So I wanted to, I wanted to point that out. Now the president has some Senate and House support on this by the way from top Republicans. Roger Wicker, the top Republican in the Senate on the Armed Forces Committee, Mike McCall, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and Mike Rogers, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. I think it was in uh around March, mid-March, they sent a letter to the president and said, "Why don't you use these? We have, Kevin, about Three million some of these in storage, I guess you'd, you'd call it. So the Republicans said, hey, why don't you use these? And that way, you know, we don't have to dip into our kind of dwindling stock of munitions. So that's how this came about. President decided to do it. It's controversial with a lot of countries and the United Nations. Okay, Bob, let's stay in Russia and Ukraine for the moment uh, because – the, there is news that the Wagner mercenary boss, Yevgeny Prigozhin, is back in Russia uh, after his brief rebellion, in quotes, against Moscow. He's returned from Belarus. This is obviously a deal that he made with Putin to get out of the country. Uh, all I can think of is whenever Russia's involved, there's a heck of a lot more to the story behind the scenes than what we're than what we know. There is. And and the last time you and I talked, actually, 
I think we brought up a, a little bit of the of the behind the scenes thought on this entire story because the national media in America carried this as the Putin revolution, the rebellion against Putin. He's going to be defeated, but yet uh, a lot of people that know the background and, and think just as you just said know that there was something more behind this. Here's what I'll throw out here for Goetzen. How can he be exiled, he, supposedly taking on Putin, exiled to Belarus, and then he ends up in St. Petersburg allowed to do what? Get money and weapons and probably leave and not vanish. Yet two top generals are sort of missing. And I think it all amounts to money and power. He goes back Putin, to Putin years and years back. They have been friends. They had a big contract, Wagner Group did, in Africa, a lot of money. I think Russia kind of, quote, wanted its share. And then they went into new contract signatures that you had to have. He got mad. And the Wagner Group got mad at Putin. They were going to, quote, march on Moscow. I think there's a lot of inside deals being cut. The fact that the fact that uh, Prigozhin can actually still exist today says that somebody's got some mutual advanced destruction knowledge on each other, shall right. we say? Right. Always <laughs> the case with Putin. Uh, Bob, not exactly. to ask you for predictions, always dangerous, but where are we headed in Ukraine and Russia? Well, I'm not saying, by the way, that there, that there maybe can't be some type of toppling of Putin. It's just Wagner's intention wasn't there. This could happen. I think, if anything, internal pressure upon Putin is, may lead to some type of you know, treaty at a table. I don't see Russia just leaving, and I don't see the Ukraine just, quote, giving up. So this is one of these things that's going to have to be negotiated by some outside powers to be. I don't, I don't know who. I don't know if we're involved or, you know, China or whoever, but some outside powers are going to have to negotiate some type of settlement. I would imagine in that negotiation, unfortunately, for the Ukraine, it's going to be the loss of some, probably some of the territory of the Ukraine. That's where I kind of see it going. I don't see a we won, we lost. I mean, look how long Russia stayed in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh Mm -hmm. Okay, I hesitate to even bring this up because it, it, uh, the, the, the words cocaine and White House are now being used in a, a, a in serious media stories. Um, uh-huh. does this deserve any attention, Bob? Well, Kevin, this story, now it deserves attention because it got weird. That's yeah. why it deserves attention. And originally, look, okay, somebody had cocaine, shocker, shocker, you know, it's the White House that makes a big shock. It, you know, it happens in the Capitol, um, on and on. Now, originally, they came out and said, well, it was in the West Wing, which is the administrative offices, and not really that much available to the public. Then the press secretary of the president said, well, it was in the executive offices of the, of the West Wing, but public has access to it. Then all of a sudden, the Secret Service said, well, no, wait a minute. It's in another part of the White House. Uh, it wasn't there. And then the Secret Service said they can't determine who brought it to the White House. Well, that creates another story, because except for an area off the Oval Office and the President and First Lady's personal living quarters, there are cameras everywhere under the sun. 
So I don't know how they can even say anything until they have, you know, went back over a period of time. That could have been laying there for 30 days, 60 days, 90, who knows, you know. So I think all these statements started to make the story very, very weird, you know, as to what happened. So it would behoove Secret Service, I guess, to start going back through the, the video and try to see, determine, did somebody from the public drop it? Or, hey, by the way, the press are uh, have access to that area, too. I want to mention that. And, and there is uh, uh, some reports that troubled presidential son Hunter Biden has been living in the White House residence. Well, he was, um, you know, there's logins log to the White House, but I will tell you, uh, for example, when members of Congress go to see the president, I don't know if they still do this or not. They just open the gate and let you in. You don't even go through screening devices. Right. I, I imagine that might have changed. So there are certain logins that could occur or not occur. I don't know how they're handling first family, you know, logins. I don't know whether he's staying there or not. But he appeared on the balcony. I think it was during one of the Fourth of July, you know, deals. Yeah. I, I really doubt he's living there. But like anything, he's the son of the president, so he will have access if he wants to go and stay there overnight. He's certainly allowed to do it. Uh, Bob, where are we in presidential politics? Uh, have we advanced in the last week? Uh, uh, everybody now, uh, Ron DeSantis is getting his moment in the uh, human MRI machine. Uh, everybody now says he's a terrible candidate and uh he does, you know, he's inarticulate and he's a bully and he's uh, just not nice and people don't like him. Um, you know, everybody gets their moment in that MRI machine on a presidential campaign. What's been the latest developments? Well, you know, when you go in those MRIs, don't wear anything metal, right? And Ron DeSantis wore a metal jacket. That's what he did. Yeah. He, he put out an ad. I've been in politics since 1973. At all different levels, he put out an ad that I – well, it wasn't his ad, but he did put out the ad, which was done on his behalf. Right. And I gasped when I saw it. And it's just an ad that is so bizarre. And now he's spending all his time trying to defend why they promoted that. Uh, he's kind of transfixed due to Florida and his uh, positions on some of the transgender issues. Kind of, you know, when I say transfixed, those are important issues to debate, but – He's kind of now into that category with this ad, and he's not gaining traction. He's losing. So it's one of those campaigns, if they – I've seen this a 100 times. If they don't get a handle on it pretty soon – now, he's going to be behind Trump, but if they don't get a handle on the campaign pretty soon, he's not even going to be – viable probably in about four months it's, what i think i i spend a lot of time in my news junkie uh way uh -huh. figuring out who are the senior aides to all these people uh, i have not uh -huh. done that with desantis does he have a quality team do you know no you know i don't i don't know and that's fair you know that's very interesting of uh of who is running i mean i can tell you in a lot of the other campaigns you know who's doing it um I don't know if he's using some of his, uh, you know, staff uh, or not. Uh, I know that he had. I should I should mention this because I do know this. One of the key people he had was his wife. I think her name's Casey DeSantis. Then he has a campaign manager. I, I'm sorry, I've never heard of of uh, of him or her. That's not terrible. I can't answer this. A uh, name Peck, uh, right. and that's about 
all I know. Well, and that's kind of weird. Editorial comment from the host here. Okay. It's always a bad idea, man or woman, to have a spouse be your basically your campaign manager. It, it's, well, it, it's, it rarely works well. I used to be on a campaign committee for the Republicans in the House, and I've got to tell you something. Bingo. When a candidate would come into my office and bring their spouse, could be a male, female, you yeah. know, uh, they would bring their spouse and say, this is my campaign manager. As soon as they would leave, I would tell the staff, uh, you better watch this campaign. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, but, you know, that's the way it was. It's exactly right. Okay. <laughs> Bob Nay, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bob Nay. God, that's fun. Uh, I hope it's as fun for you as it is for me. We're back. Uh, Centerpoint Adolescent Treatment Services, which has long provided counseling and educational services to hundreds of at-risk youth, is scheduled to close September 1st, even as the number of teens needing mental health support soars. That story in this week's Seven Days by the great Allison Novak, who joins us on the show. Allison, what has happened? Well, thank you for having me. Yes, this is very devastating news. So Centerpoint, which has been providing both a therapeutic school as well as counseling services to hundreds of youth in the Chittenden County area, um, for 28 years, it's been run by three agencies or organizations, the Howard Center, NFI Vermont, and Matrix Health. And they announced um, about a week or two ago that um, because of financial pressures, they are kind of dissolving their partnership uh, to run CenterPoint, which leaves the future of CenterPoint, you know, very, very uncertain. So they will no longer be running, running the organization. And that means 36 CenterPoint employees will be uh, laid off effective sept- uh, September 1st. Um, yep. Now, is there a reason that you discovered for why they're closing it? Well, a spokesperson at the Howard Center told me that CenterPoint over the last two years has lost about $1.5 million. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Um I spoke or I, I got a statement from Mark Redman, the executive director of Spectrum, and he kind of laid it out um, very clearly. So essentially, you know, with inflation, um, the cost to provide these services has has risen. However, state funding has kind of stayed level or stagnant um, for, for many years. Um and then what he also said is that insurance companies don't reimburse for the full cost of care. Um, so that essentially leaves um, these social services organizations that do really important work underfunded um, and not able to do as much work as, as they used to. So, uh, yeah, you interviewed uh, Mark Redmond and who I've known and who's been on this show. What, what the folks who, what, where, where are these kids going to go? Where are these families going to take their kids? I mean, I think that's a very, very um, live question right now. Um, I got a statement from um, the the director of CenterPoint, um, uh, who basically said, his name is Mitch Barron, who basically said that 
you know, Centerpoint, they're, they're not um, giving up hope that they can find another agency to run them or another way to provide these services. But, you know, in terms of other places to go, um, Spectrum runs its own counseling program. And I spoke to one of the therapists in that program, and she told me, you know, we have a wait list. Centerpoint has had a wait list. And she just didn't know where these, these adolescents um, would be able to find services. Um, so, you know, I think there's, of course, we're in this kind of mental health crisis, and there's this real demand for these types of services. Um, and there are wait lists at probably pretty much every program that provides them. And so I think that is a very kind of troubling um, question as to, you know, where, where these um, students will be able to find services. Sounds like we need to devote a whole show to this. Allison, what... What did you find in your reporting? I hate to ask you to speculate, but we, we now, it's almost a, a, a knee-jerk reaction. We all have sort of concluded that we are in a mental health crisis, especially with regard to young people. I, what's the evidence of that? Why are we all saying that? Is it pandemic-related? In your reporting, what, what have you learned about this mental health crisis that we seem to all agree is happening? Yeah, so, I mean, um, I spoke with Becca Ballant um, for this story, and, you know, she's made mental health for youth, like, a big part of her platform. She's introduced a couple of bills in Congress related to kind of uh, improving mental health outcomes for students. And, you know, one of the things she said is the pandemic has exacerbated this but didn't create this problem. I think there's a lot of speculation that social media is kind of um, one of the issues that has driven this mental health crisis. Um, uh, Becca Ballant has um, a bill in Congress called the Protecting Young Minds Online Act, which would basically require the government to develop a strategy to address the effects of social media on children's mental health. Um, The data that we have, the state data that we have is from the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which is administered every other year by the Vermont Department of Health. Um, So this data is from 2021. That's the most recent data. Um, And what it shows is that 35% of high school students um, have reported poor mental health. Um, So, you know, that's that's over a third. Um, And the rates are very much higher when it comes to LGBTQ plus and female students. Um, so, so that is kind of some of the evidence we have. There's a lot of national evidence that kind of reflects a similar, um, similar thing. You know, I'm old enough to remember that when we were kids, this didn't seem to be an issue. And as I said, yeah. I think we need to devote a show to this. Uh, and I guess my question is, you know, when we were kids, is that because it wasn't an issue and that mental health was, was fine? Or was it just swept under the rug and we just all ignored it? I mean, I think the statistics do show that this is a problem that's gotten worse over the years. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think I think you can't rule out the effects of social media and the Internet and technology um, in kind of maybe speeding up the rate of, of this um, of this problem. So, yeah, I mean, I think in a way it's less stigmatized than it was years previously. And so maybe in that way, you know, it was a problem that existed 
but people felt nervous about, you know, talking about publicly and there's less of a stigma now. So I could imagine that being something that plays into this. But, you know, I think all all signs point to this getting worse. Um, yeah, this is the uh, Messrs. Zuckerberg and company. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, this is a this is a subject that requires uh, deep investigation. But we, you know, Centerpoint closing is is a I don't know thirty six employees going to be laid off. Uh, where are these kids going to go? Uh, yeah, we'll get the mayor of Burlington on to talk about this and and maybe Mark Redmond as well from Spectrum. Mm. Um, this you know something uh, you know something will spring up you would think but but as Mark Redmond loves to point out uh, at Spectrum you know the state only uh, doesn't pay you know state funding for these kinds of services has not kept pace with the growing expense. And the state, yeah. these these agencies don't get reimbursed for the full cost of what they uh, do, and it's not like they're getting rich uh, doing this. So right. uh, something has to give, and I suspect this is going to land in the legislature's lap in January. Mm-hmm. I imagine so. And you know, I think it's also notable that you know the therapeutic school that Centerpoint runs, which you know, serves about 25 students, so not as many as the, you know, counseling services reach. But this is a school for students who, you know, can't succeed in the mainstream public school system. Um, I interviewed them actually last month when I was, or two months ago, when I was writing about restraint and seclusion. They're one of the few schools that don't use restraint on students, and, you know, they have a very kind of community-based, relationship-based approach. And so, you know, for me personally, after having kind of interviewed them and learning about their processes, I was really shocked to see that they were closing, um, given that they are, you know, a school that is providing these very necessary services. And, you know, every administrator you talk to would say, you know, it's really important to have these therapeutic schools for students who need an alternative. Um, there's another therapeutic school called Mosaic um, that also closed in June. So that's leaving only five schools, therapeutic schools in Chittenden County. And, you know, many of them are tiny. They have 10, 15 students. So I think that's another issue that um, the legislature might have to contend with. They put a moratorium on all independent schools starting July 1st, so just last week. And that includes therapeutic schools, meaning that no new therapeutic schools are allowed to open under this moratorium. And so I think that's kind of problematic, too. Like, I felt confused about why the moratorium on independent schools, which was meant to kind of regulate independent schools more, was also pertaining to therapeutic schools, since, like, we clearly need more of them. Yes, and and the State Board of Education uh, rushed through approvals of two uh, independent schools uh, just to get in under that deadline. Now oh, that's going to yep. be interesting to watch. You write about Courtney Quinlan of Burlington, whose 18-year-old son Avery graduated from Center Point in June. Uh, they really are devastated by the the closing of this because they really helped him. Yep, yep. She said, you know, he graduated. He's 18, and he had really not been able to find success in the public school system. I think he had also gone to another therapeutic school that wasn't um, able to really provide him with an environment he needed. And she said, you know, Centerpoint really fostered his love for photography and 
really work with the family to help them with their um, problems. And she was just devastated that the school was closing. You can read that story by Allison Novak and all others. You can, Allison lists her email right next to her byline, Allison at seven days VT.com. And you can get all of this news and much more, especially about what you're going to do this weekend. Seven days VT.com. Allison, as always, welcome and thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Okay. Take care. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and boy, we're coming to the end, but we're saving the best for last. Uh, Larry Gilbert has been on a, a, a campaign to uh, close the main artery of East Montpelier, at least on our side of town, uh, not Route 14, but County Road. Uh, close that to traffic so that we can use it f- for uh, rollerblading, walking, biking, uh, the dogs, etc. And Larry joins us on the line to talk more about it. Larry, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Kevin. Thanks for inviting me back. Okay, tell, give us the facts. What's going on? Yeah. So, um, uh, going going back a little ways, last uh, last fall there was a big uh, culvert replacement and paving project on County Road, and uh, that it forced the closure of the road for about four months, unfortunately. Uh, the good news was that at the end of it, we had this gorgeous stretch of smooth, brand-new, lovely asphalt, um, just the smoothest pavement around. And um, immediately after the road reopened, uh, I went to the select board and said, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have a little celebration of the new paving project and let people go out there and enjoy enjoy the road without, without cars whizzing by? And they said, sure, that sounds fun. And so we did that, and we got about 200 on just a couple of days' notice, got a couple of hundred people to come out, and it was cold, but everybody had a, had a great time. And a bunch of the folks who were there said, hey, um, are you going to do this again? I hadn't really thought about it at the time, but uh, got together with a group of a small group of people, and they said, let's see if we can maybe make something happen sort of uh, on the with the concept of Open Streets, which is a national organization that um, promotes this kind of activity. And so... Went back to the select board with a proposal. Um, They were concerned about liability and so asked us to figure that out. So we went to the East Montpelier Recreation Committee, uh, which is mostly charged with um, promoting youth sports in in the town, uh, and asked them if they would take us under their wing, so to speak, and they agreed um, and which which solved the liability problem because uh, their co- the recreation board's activities are covered under the town's uh, the town's insurance. So um, so then we went back to the board, explained we had solved that particular problem, and they sort of tentatively said, yeah, okay, we'll 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 approve foreclosures, uh, but after the first one, which is this Sunday. Um, we want you to report back and we have the option to sort of say no to the whole thing if it, if it doesn't work out. So that's what's happening right now. Uh, this coming Sunday, July 9th, nine to noon, uh, a two mile stretch of County road will be closed to, uh, through traffic. It will be available to, um, local traffic folks who live along that stretch of the road will be able to come and go as, as needed. But through traffic will be routed around the detour that was the same detour that was used for the construction for, for all those months. And we're hoping that uh, we get a whole bunch of folks to come out and, uh, 
you know, walk, bike, rollerblade, roller ski. That's what happened last time. And uh, this time we've had a little bit more notice to, to get the word out. So we're That's, very, very this, hopeful. This is great. So let's make it all about me. How does this affect me and my house at the corner of Horn of the Moon and County Road? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a, that, that's a reasonable question. People uh, people ask us are, are very concerned with that. So, so you will be if you need to get to Montpelier in your car that morning, Sunday morning. I'll go North um, Street. You could go to North Street, or you could go around uh, the Templeton Road uh, uh, Center Road uh, detour. Yeah. Either, either way works. Here's here's the thing. That detour, the one I, I not the North Street one, but the 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 one that was most commonly used last year during construction. It adds two miles to the journey. It adds about six minutes of travel time. So um, we tried to minimize the disruption to people's lives. Uh, oh, don't get me wrong. I No, I'm not concerned that it'll injure my life. I'm, I want to make sure that there's no traffic in front of my house so that I can walk out there. It, so wh- wh- from where to where is the closure? Yeah, uh, okay. Um, Templeton Road to Barnes Road. So you uh, – Great. You, Cars will still be going past your house, Kevin. Okay. <laughs> I wish we could take it back to dirt, but uh, there, there's always hoping. But, wow, that's great. Templeton to Barnes, that is just going to be fantastic. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a lovely stretch of road. There's some, uh, you know, some fens along the way, and there's a lot of bird life to be seen and turtles and, um, you know, but mostly – you know what we're hoping is that people will get out and 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 meet their neighbors and and have conversations. Um, that's what happened last time. We had a bunch of folks tell us that there was a, hey, I, I met people on County Road I didn't I didn't know uh, before, um, and and there's good reason for that. The, you know the traffic flies by at 50 miles an hour there. It's pretty hard to. Uh, to, to get to know your neighbors, so it's not it's not a quiet dirt road at all. No, not anymore. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's great. Uh, so from Barnes going up to Templeton, no traffic this Sunday from nine to noon. Yep, that's the that that's the plan, and we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have uh, signs out there. Oh, one a couple other things. Um, um, the Montpelier Electric Bike Lending Library will be at the Barnes Road uh, um, junction there, and they'll have a handful of their new e-bikes that they're promoting as a, as a lending library uh, in Montpelier. And so anybody that wants to try uh, try one of those can come out and, and uh, you know, be able to use it, uh, you know, w- without without fear of, uh, of traffic. So. I mean, I, I'm, I'm excited about this for a couple of reasons. I mean, the, the, one of the most common complaints about biking along County Road or almost any road in Vermont is, is people are fearful of cars, that cars don't uh, give them room, they don't slow down, they don't show them the respect, and, and so they, they, they're afraid, and so, so they don't ride their bikes. Um, and so, you know, it'd be nice to have a stretch of road where that, that's not the, not the case, and, and hopefully it will begin – some thinking and conversation about, boy, how could we do roads in the future in a way that that uh, that make it make it make them bikeable? You know, how can we in- include bike lanes? And I kind of kicked myself a little bit when this whole project was starting up um, months and months and months ago. That uh, you know, I wasn't a little bit more vocal about, you know, great, I'm glad we're going to have this beautiful new surface, but could we put uh, two feet on on either side and have have that be a bike lane um but i didn't but maybe that will 
spur some more of that kind of thinking as as we move forward. So, and how, Larry? How does this? You talked about the Safe Streets program. How do these two go together? Yeah. So the uh, the Open Streets program is is a it's a sort of a national movement, uh, and um, there's there's several chapters around Vermont. One in one in Montpelier. It's been a little bit nascent and, and not not doing a whole lot. Um, uh, and and they, you know, typically these these kind of open streets things happen happen in urban environments. They close down a big stretch of uh, of, of, of neighborhoods and, and allow people to sort of do exactly what we're doing is just get out and use the streets for something other than driving cars in. Um, the uh, the open streets committee down in in Montpelier, um, you know, caught wind of all of this and and they uh, of, of the of the county road project, and they thought, you know, this would be this would be a nice thing for us to be involved in, and, and thankfully they have been because they've been super helpful. Nancy Schultz, the director down there, has been amazing as far as promoting this to to um, all the folks in Montpelier, and um, uh, so so. If you know if we're successful up here in East Montpelier, then then hopefully we'll give Montpelier the Montpelier group some energy and encouragement to explore some of the opportunities down in town in Montpelier or other towns. There's a local motion from uh, from Burlington is very interested in what we're doing. Um, so um, we'd like to, we'd love it to spread. You know, I think it'd be a really cool project. To, uh, Every town in uh, in Vermont had an open streets day, and uh, people could uh, could use their local roads for something other than driving. In my experience, you know, there's whether it's New York City or uh, a rural place like where we live, uh, there is nothing. I've never seen anything like it. When you close the street, there, and when you do it on a regular basis, I know they they close Storo Drive down in Cambridge. Uh, I think every Sunday all summer. There's just uh-huh. something that happens. There's a there's a human energy that happens. Uh, people are setting up cones, and rollerblading between them. They're biking. They're running. They're doing all sorts of things. There's a whole different kind of energy that emerges from the human race when you remove cars from the equation. And for the life of me, I can't understand why uh, we don't do it more. But thanks to pioneers like you, we're doing it more. Yeah, thank, thank, thanks for bringing that up. It's uh, um, it, it, it is sort of an indescribable thing that that, that, that goes on, and, and I, I know you know certainly observed that uh, last year when we when we did it uh, on that on that November uh, that November morning, and uh, people were just happy to be out, and um, it sort of felt like uh, playing hooky from school or something like that. You were just uh, enjoy you know sort of this uh, illicit uh, forbidden fruit that you got to exactly. Got to, you got the sample, and it was kind of uh, kind of wonderful. So it's a yeah, and and you know, East Montpelier, East Montpelier doesn't have uh, too many things where the community comes together and and does something. I mean, we have town meeting, but that's uh, that's not particularly joyous, you know. And right. uh, and there is the youth sports that I mentioned, but if you don't have kids in the programs, then that's not something. So we used to have this thing called rally days in East Montpelier, but that's kind of gone by the wayside. And so, um, you know, maybe maybe this will start uh, a little bit of collective uh, collective thinking in our town. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. So let's get let's close with the details. Sure. Uh, when and where? Yeah, um, nine to noon on Sunday, 
on County Road from Barnes to Templeton. And so if you're coming up from Montpelier, it's just past Morse Farm is where the whole thing begins. If you're coming from Callis, it's just just beyond your house there at the, at the Horn of the Moon, past the Horn of the Moon Road. Uh, you can park at either place. There would be parking at Morse Farm. They've been very generous in allowing us to oh, great. Direct, direct people down to, down to their lot. Um, also, so if you can't make it this Sunday, there's going to be three more Sundays. So it's called Second Sunday. So second Sunday in August, September, and October is what we're, uh, what we're going for. You talking about this online anywhere? Is there a Facebook page or how do they find, how do, how do we keep track of when the dates are? Yeah. So the East Montpelier uh, rec committee has a Facebook page and, um, the details are, 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 are there. Larry Gilbert, I'll see you out there this Sunday. That's great. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Okay. Larry Gilbert. East Montpelier, pioneer of trafficless roads, County Road, this Sunday from Templeton to Barnes Road. So you can park. If you want to start at Barnes, just park at the Morse Farm. And if you see Burr Morse there, give him a thank you. Um, you know, we've never had Burr Morse on this show. God, can you believe that? Uh, we're going to let's put him on the list for sure. Uh, so park at the Morse Farm. And walk up a little bit of a hike, but uh, walk up to Barnes Road and try to make it all the way out to Templeton. And I'll I'll be out there walking and sitting. Maybe we'll bring a camp chair and a barbecue or something. Uh, what a great stretch of road. That'll be really fun. This Sunday, 9 to noon, Barnes Road to Templeton. And uh, cars not invited. We're back. Our phones are open, 244-1777. You can email me at... Vermont view, VT Viewpoint at RadioVermont.com. And I am ready to take your calls about anything that is on your mind. You can talk about the EB-5. Uh, I know that, uh, was it Brian in Brookfield? He had a burr under his saddle about uh, about uh, paying off, using taxpayer money to pay this law, pay, pay off this lawsuit to go away. $16 million in taxpayer funds. Um what what we get out of it is uh, no more lawsuits uh, about EB-5. Uh, what uh, what those non-fans of former Governor Peter Shumlin, who was the main uh, supporter of this program and uh, embedded in that scandal, was uh, they wanted to see him on the stand, uh, on the witness stand, uh, to respond to questions. Um, uh, $16 million, that's a lot of money. But uh, it settles all the lawsuits. Uh, now, if I have that number wrong, please call in and let me know. Two four four one seven seven seven. Okay. Uh, art notes. It is it is Friday, so tonight. Guess who's playing at the Whammy Bar in Callis at Maple Corner? The Chad Hollister Band. You missed open mic night last night. You know why I missed it? I missed it because it was my son's birthday, and his favorite place in the world is Positive Pie in downtown Montpelier. And then we went to the movie with Jennifer Lawrence uh, called No Hard Feelings, where she, as a as a somewhat seasoned uh, 30-year-old, uh, is hired by wealthy parents on Long Island to uh, <clears throat> educate uh, their 19-year-old uh, son before he goes off to college. Uh, first half of that movie is uproariously funny. Jennifer, Jennifer uh, Lawrence is a talent, uh, really, really, really funny. And I recommend it highly. 
I was disappointed that I did not get to go to see Harrison Ford in uh, the latest Raiders. Uh, I was going to say Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones film. Uh, it's getting mixed reviews, but I'm going to go. Uh, anyway, uh, Chad Hollister band at the Whammy Bar tonight. Boy, that's a small space for a guy who can really turn up the volume. But uh, that usually gets started around 7 o'clock. Probably one of the best gathering spots in all of Vermont. Um, my my uh, mother-in-law is visiting from Washington, D.C. She's originally from Great Britain. And guess what's playing at Unadilla Theater tonight in Callis? The Pirates of Penzance. Uh, I've never been a big, who are those guys? Gilbert and Sullivan. I've never been a big Gilbert and Sullivan guy, but we're going to try to get her to go to the Pirates of Penzance. Unadilla Theater, 7 o'clock. Uh, uh, as I said before, my buddy uh, Nessa, the opera singer who stocks the, uh, the, uh, the, the beer and the, uh, you know, what's it called? Kombucha. Yeah, kombucha. Uh, the kombucha shelves, uh, at the Hunger Mountain Co-op. She's in it and, uh, she says it's going great. She loves it. Uh, I, I, I said, I introduced her to my kids and I said she's an opera singer and she's in Pirates of Penzance, but she, uh, corrected me and said this is an operetta. I have no idea what the difference is. If somebody knows the difference between opera and operetta, please call in 2441777 in the last two minutes uh, before we have to go for the weekend. So much going on. Uh, we've paid off the EB-5 scandal. Uh, we can we can move on. Uh, that's, uh, you know, and now, now there's this, this last story of the day. God, how much federal money is there? Moreau Weinberger, the mayor of Burlington, and U.S. Senator Peter Welch Thursday announced uh, $22 million bucks in downtown in funding for downtown street improvements uh, in, in Burlington. Uh, that's, that's a fair amount of – it's going to reconnect roadways severed when the former Burlington Town Center Mall was built. That's going to be interesting. Oh, we've got a call. Let's go to Dale in Burlington. Dale, you're on the line. We're running out of time, so make it quick. I'll be quick. Uh, $16.5 million to settle the EB-5 fiasco. I compare that to Burlington Telecom that was $17 million. So I'm wondering if $16.5 million is even close to what we're actually going to pay for a settlement. It's a good point, and you know what? Let's get the attorney general on to explain this thing and maybe a lawyer or two because you're raising a very good question. Uh, Dale, thanks for the call. Uh-oh, let's end the show with the one and only man from Elmore, Rusty Dewees. Hey. Hello. How are you doing? I'm, we're doing great. What's the weekend hold for you? I don't have any jobs, and that's on purpose. It's going to be enjoying where we live and, like everyone else, safely, hopefully. But I have one question for you, Kevin. I, I listen carefully to your words, and you, you, I've been looking at this Jennifer Lawrence upcoming movie, and uh, you said the first half of that movie was uproariously funny. But you didn't say anything about the second half. And uh, So give us your reigning review. Should uh, one go or should one not go? You're kind of like diplomatic. Dip, doing diplomacy there. Uh, diplomacy. Uh, you know, uh, the second half is also very good, but 
it follows the usual Hollywood script. I won't, I won't spoil it for you, but you know, the, the first half's incredibly funny. The second half, you know, people get ethics and morals and they start behaving like adults. And you know, when people start be, you know, when people try to be normal, uh, you know, things get dull and when they're crazy, it's really funny. So I, I highly recommend it. I'd give it an eight. And, uh, I recommend it to everybody. It's really funny. I, your, your 90 year old mother-in-law, uh, and mine is visiting, uh, we, it, it, not all that appropriate for her. There is a fabulous beach scene where Jennifer Lawrence beats up on some bullies. And, uh, I, I recommend that to anyone. Beach vigilante. That's great. All right, man. Have a good weekend. Okay. Thanks. You too. Rusty Dewey's. That's our show. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know why I laugh every time I talk to that guy. That's our show. Uh, the show becomes a podcast at WDEVradio.com. And of course, you can listen live to the show whenever we're here, which is Wednesday and Friday. You can find me at KevinKEllis.com. Subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest and its companion podcast. We gotta go. I'll, uh, I'll see you next Wednesday with a whole new raft of guests. You're listening to Ken Squires, friendly pioneer, Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.